the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thanks for joining us again. You can follow us online, danproftshow.com. That's where podcasts of the show are housed, as well as on Spotify and iTunes and all the other usual places. In addition to uh, social media, you can track us at Dan Prof Show on Facebook and Twitter. Also at Dan Prof handle on both of those uh, platforms. Uh, Prof at Prof Dan at Instagram. Uh, you can find us, and you can find uh, out what's in that two trillion dollar disaster aid relief package. Right now, uh, President Trump uh, uh, sort of previewing it at last night's COVID task force briefing before the Senate voted 96 to nothing in the early morning hours on Thursday to uh, move it over to the House, which will take it up on Friday, and then it will go to the president's desk, most certainly. Here's what the president had to say about it last night. This is certainly, in terms of dollars, by far and away the biggest ever, ever done, and that's a tremendous thing because a lot of this money goes to Jobs, 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 and families, families, families. The Senate bill, as you know, includes $350 billion in job retention loans for small businesses with loan forgiveness available for businesses that continue paying their workers. They continue paying their workers. That's what we want. We want them to keep their workers and pay their workers. This will help businesses keep workers in the payroll and allow our economy to quickly accelerate as soon as we defeat the virus. Well, just on that, because this is an important piece of it, right? Keep employees on the payroll, keep businesses doors open. This is how that aspect of it works. Businesses get a tax credit for keeping idle workers on their payrolls. So long as the businesses meet certain criteria, which I'll get to. They would get a refund for half of what they spend on wages up to $5,000 per worker. Half of what they spend, up to $5,000. To qualify, businesses have to prove they took a 50% loss quarter over quarter. First quarter of this year versus first quarter of last year. 50% loss. And to keep companies from double dipping on aid under the bill, employers won't be able to get get special SBA loans if they opt for this tax credit. So that's on the payroll side, on the direct checks to Americans. One of the other top lines here uh, that that basically hasn't changed. Twelve hundred bucks per person for incomes under seventy five grand, twenty four hundred for couples uh, and one hundred fifty grand, obviously, for married couples. Then a five hundred dollar kicker per child. Steve Mnuchin gave uh, the Treasury Secretary gave a bit of a timeline on that. Uh, We also have economic input. Inc. impact payments. These will be within the next three weeks, direct payments into most people's deposit accounts. And for those that don't have it, uh, we will be having the, the checks in the mail. 
For uh, more on um, the key components of this, as well as, uh, oh, by the way, the thing that not too many people are talking about, um, at least not named Larry Kudlow, at least from the administration, the $4 trillion uh, on the Fed side, the monetary policy side, pleased to be joined by Don Boudreaux, American economist, author, professor, and co-director of the Program on the American Economy and Globalization at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, regular contributor at CafeHayek.com, too, which is a good blog for all things economics-related. Don Boudreaux, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. How do you react to, um, well, let's talk about uh, this at piecemeal at first, at least. Uh, talk about uh, the approach to the uh, stated mission. Government shuts down my business, then government should m- meet my payroll until I government lets me open my business again. That's sort of the thinking, which I, I don't uh, disagree with, particularly from the business person's perspective. Does the business retention piece of this make sense to you? Yeah, let, let, let me, it does. Let me start with a, a, a general comment. We are in uncharted waters, waters now, and so the range of uncertainty is a lot greater, and hence the range of you know, plausible uh, beliefs and responses is, is wider than normal. Uh, but um, one the thing I keep coming back to in my own mind is that you can print as many government checks as you want. The Fed can inject as much money into the banking system as its computers can, can achieve. Uh, but the problem now is creating physical output, actual physical production. With, As you mentioned, the government actively shutting the economy down government is stopping production. It's stopping people from working. It's stopping people from delivering things to market. Uh, and of course, this is going to have follow-on effects of, 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 of reduced demand. But the problem did not start with people being fearful of spending. People want to spend. People have had jobs and incomes to spend. But the government comes in and, and, and shuts things down. So when, when it does that, yeah, I mean, it's got some sort of obligation, I suppose, to to at least help people pay their their bills for businesses to cover their their, their fixed costs, businesses to pay the rent and, and their insurance premium. Uh, but but let's not delude ourselves. You, you, you can write, you can have a stimulus bill of two point two trillion, two hundred and twenty two trillion. If there's less stuff out there that's produced and available to purchase by consumers and by businesses as inputs then we are going to be a lot poorer, and the result is going to be ultimately inflation. And so unless people return to work and start producing, uh, then we have bad economic problems. Now, it's a separate question about how to weigh. Well, and, uh, and just, just, just on that point, uh, just on that point, I mean, I, I think um, you're, you're absolutely right, um, but, and I think President Trump sort of gets that, which is why he put down that aspirational marker of Easter weekend. I think he understands exactly what you're saying, at least at the ma- the macro level, at the kind of a high level, that, uh, you know, this is not a sustainable path. We can't do this in March and then come back in April and do another two trillion, six trillion, 10 trillion, 20 trillion, then do it again in May. This can't go on for three or four months like this. So we're going to do this. And now we need to figure out what else the path looks like in trying to balance the interests of public Health and economic public health. Yeah, I I, I agree. I'm, I'm not one to too readily give President Trump credit. I've been a harsh critic of, of him, particularly his trade policies in the past. But I do think 
that that remark does indeed indicate exactly what you said it indicates. Namely, he, he, he does sense uh, that this is, and correctly senses, that this is not a sustainable this is not a sustainable path. We're not going to get out of this as people think we got out of past recessions simply by printing more money and ramping up aggregate demand. And so, and, and so now going back to, to this, I mean, that sort of uh, right. characterizes this. One of the things, though, too, is this idea, you know, that to me, the thing that has me most tracing my veins is not the, the public health or even the economic health issues. It's it's the, the cants we have to listen to from politicians and and those and frankly, some of those with um, with uh, uh, stethoscopes that sound like politicians too. Uh, this I, this idea of uh, you know this bipartisanship and this was uh, rising to the moment. Uh, okay, some of this stuff is necessary. We agree. It doesn't mean you should be out there actively defending twenty five million dollars to the Kennedy Center because it shut down. Uh, yes, and and right. that, that, that you can just dispense with anything resembling intellectual consistency about what is sensible policy and what is not sensible policy, because a big concern and uh, had this conversation on another program with Brian Westbury. A big concern is with these sorts of government market interventions, the size of them, not only the externalities they throw off, but the new normal they set in motion of this is going to be the level of government intervention going forward. I cannot agree more. I cannot agree more. One of the unfortunate, greatest unfortunate precedents set in American history was the Hoover and the Roosevelt administration responses to the recession of 1930. Uh, I'm, I am convinced, and I think economic research shows, that, that the government interventions then extended and deepened uh, that recession and turned into a Great Depression. And I think, and it sets precedent going forward. And so people are today panic. Panic is not a very good a climate in which to make public policy decisions. But whatever public policy decisions are made do set precedents. And I agree with you completely that the precedents being set today are going to have negative effects going forward. Neither you nor I can predict exactly what those negative effects will be, but nothing can good nothing good can come from or very little good can come from such panicked over the top reaction. Uh, when we come back, uh, I want to pick up our discussion on the red tape pandemic. At least that's how John Stossel characterizes it in a new video he's done on the topic. And and perhaps uh, something that could be a good new normal coming out of the response to this pandemic. Looking for silver linings here. More with Don Boudreau, American economist, author, professor, co-director of the program on the American economy and globalization at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. We'll be back right after this. You can go your own way. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show and uh, john stossel the great john stossel you remember him from 2020 and uh, all sorts of other Fox Business, all sorts of other investigative shows and contributions he's made, these packages he puts together. He's put together another one that uh, was posted at Reason.com on the regulatory uh, uh, aspect of this, the red tape pandemic. 
uh, that probably we didn't realize we were suffering from until we had a public health pandemic. And uh, I just want to point this out because maybe this is a positive to come from our post-COVID-19 world, uh, which is with respect to the FDA and the CDC. Uh, If there's one thing that uh, has really punctuated President Trump's administration and been underreported, it's not more so than the tax cuts, uh, more so than on immigration policy. It's been the regulatory relief just by not promulgating very many new regulations, as if the Federal Register isn't thick enough. John Stossel on the red tape pandemic. The machines, hundreds of these machines, are currently in the United States, uh, but... They're not allowed to be to, to test for the virus. Not for coronavirus Because yet. you need FDA approval. Yep. Last month, the government finally said it would relax its rules. Instead of the months or year-long wait, there would be an expedited approval process. But even that took so long that few independent tests were approved. We had some very old and obsolete rules that we had to live with. Finally, last week, the president said, just do it. Ask us for permission later. Normally, it's like years and years and years. The FDA announced emergency use authorization of a new on-site test. Now tests are being made, but that delay has killed people. Other rules prevent doctors from innovating, like trying out new, maybe more efficient ways to evaluate patients, like telemedicine. Being able to care for people at home with video visits and with remote monitoring. That might violate patient privacy, said the government. Only last week that officials finally say they'd allow enforcement discretion. Finally, patients can consult doctors without risking getting infections in crowded waiting rooms. Telemedicine should have been legalized years ago. And now the pandemic raises a new problem. There's just only so many people that can provide care, only so many beds that exist. Yet federal rules actually limit the number of beds allowed in some hospitals. Only last week did the president change that. The White House is easing some federal regulations to make more hospital beds available. And if there aren't enough doctors in your state... We have a shortage of doctors and nurses in South Florida. It's illegal for a nurse or doctor to come from another state to help. That violates a tangled web of state licensing rules. The president said he would waive certain federal license requirements so that doctors from other states can provide services in states with the greatest need. But it turns out he doesn't have the power to override state laws. Now at least some states have announced they will allow out-of-state licensed physicians in good standing to practice in Massachusetts. Good. But the time it took to get rid of these rules allowed the virus to spread farther. After coronavirus passes, we should leave those rules waived. Those and many, many others. Don Boudreau joins us again. Uh, We're back with Don Boudreau, American economist, author, professor, and co-director of the program on the American economy and globalization at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And uh, Don, I mean, all these rules that most people probably had no idea existed, like, for example, (laughs) the idea that doctors can't move from one state to the other based on demand and need to help with uh, treating patients in addition to hospital beds, in addition to uh, antiviral, bringing antiviral therapies to market. All these rules and regulations, as Stossel suggests, may be the new normal after COVID-19 will be that those regulations remain relaxed permanently. Let's hope so. Yeah, and I agree with you. This could be a silver lining around this, around this dark cloud, uh, and a silver lining, by the way, that 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 might have major 
positive impacts uh, as, as, as time moves forward. Well, you think so, about it, you think about it, too, and there was an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal from um, uh, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution and a... Uh, David a co- Henderson and Charlie Hooper, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You got it. And, and uh, um, it used to be just safe to get uh, a drug to market. Now it has to be safe and effective, and that slows down bringing it to market. If it's going to do no harm, then why not let the market uh, uh, figure that out, particularly when it comes to having a sense of urgency about figuring out if that anti-malarial drug works or remdesivir, et cetera? Yeah, yeah that's, that, that is exactly right. Uh, I'm a big fan of, of David, uh, David Henderson's work and, uh, and, and Charlie Hooper's, and they are spot on. I read that, that uh, op-ed in the journal. Um, I mean, I, 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 can't, I can't speak to them because I'm even more radical. I, I have even more radical. I, I think the FDA is, 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 is a huge obstacle. I think it's, it, it does not justify its existence. Uh, I would have a much more open and free um, uh, market for new medical products and, and, and pharmaceuticals. But certainly getting rid of the requirement that they be proven effective is a good thing to do. And getting back to the original point here, uh, we are seeing a uh, significant uh, uh, lowering of a lot of these regulatory barriers, which have done no harm. I mean, some people will ask, well, you know, if, if, if getting rid of them in times of emergency is good, what's the point of having them in, in, in normal times? Right. And hopefully people will see that, uh, that connection. Uh, the other thing, too, when it comes to regulatory agencies, government in general, this is really um, a case where to, to examine uh, the problem of mission creep. Uh, at places like CDC uh, and, and again, the government in general, where, uh, you know, your job is the Center for Disease Control. So sort of planning for pandemics, worst case scenarios, dealing with disease should be your sole focus, should be the lane in which you stay. Getting in the business of uh, cultural politics, uh, opining on uh, transgender issues, transgender bathrooms and so on and so forth. You're outside of your lane. You're off your mission focus. And uh, that becomes a real problem, particularly since the CDC was, uh, uh, you know, did, to the extent they, they had any foresight into something like this occurring, they didn't beat the drum loudly enough for policymakers to provide, for example, the necessary supplies to respond to such a pandemic. Yeah, absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. But we have to always keep in mind in, regular, in normal times and in crisis times, in, in particular in crisis times, Government officials have their, have, are, are self-interested just like the rest of us. And so whenever they see an opportunity to expand their power and expand their influence, they're going to seize it. And it's just human nature. That's what they're going to do. And one unfortunate, many unfortunate uh, side effects of making policy during times of panic is people are much less alert. The public is much less alert to uh, – the kind of mission creep that, that you, you described. In fact, in some cases, it's probably not even mission creep, it's mission gallop uh, into into another lane. Uh, so I, I, I agree completely. He is Don Boudreau. He's an American economist, author, professor, co-director of the program on the American economy and globalization at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And again, uh, check out his contributions at and the contributions of others at CafeHayek.com. Don Boudreau, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Don't call us. Don't call us. 
tape, you know, the band performs in the nude. He said, uh-uh, don't call it. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, one of the things that has been repeated at every one of the presidential briefings and in a lot of the state-level briefings as well is the uh, 15-day guidelines that have been promulgated by federal authorities in consultation with the infectious disease experts that are part of the task force, uh, most notably Drs. Fauci and Burks, of course, who have become something akin to household names at this point. And uh, one wonders uh, what our expectations should be about where we'll be at in a week. We're sort of halfway uh, through the 15-day guidelines, after which there's going to be an assessment and then some additional decisions made. For more on this topic and so many others under the COVID-19 umbrella, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Gary Slutkin, physician and epidemiologist who's led efforts to combat epidemics of tuberculosis, cholera, AIDS, He's a former director of intervention at the World Health Organization. He currently tracks and advises governments on COVID-19. He's also the founder of an organization called Cure Violence. Dr. Slutkin, thanks for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Thank you. So what about that? You know, where we're at in this 15-day period, this has been, uh, uh, this has been a, a subject of great emphasis. The uh, federal rules are most centered around social distancing. What should our expectations be, you know, this time next week in terms of uh, where we're at and in, 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 um, addressing the virus and and, uh, you know, all the other associated matters like our economy? Um, with respect to the virus, I, I expect where um, we'll be at is that we're going to have to strengthen our um, efforts to reduce the transmission of the virus from uh people to other people. Um, the, uh, the curves are going up everywhere that there are curves. Everywhere there are cases, they continue to go up. Not only are they going up, they're um, doubling um, regularly. Um, some places are doubling uh, every four or five days. The United States as a whole is doubling every three days. New York City is doubling every two days. So I'm not talking about increasing. I'm talking about increasing on top of increasing, doubling. So there isn't any place that is going down. So until we push the rate of increase down and then so that it isn't increasing and then so that it is decreasing, which nowhere is this happening, um, can we possibly let up? And I think everyone will see um, from top to bottom that our efforts need to be strengthened. And those places that don't think that they have a problem yet, um, it may be that, and it's most likely that they haven't done enough testing. But once they have a case, then they have, there will be a second case and a fourth case, and a case can become a thousand in uh, a month to two months. But, but and so the it, it's very important that we increase our efforts everywhere. So so and, and you know how people are. And this is in part because the way the media reports this, uh, they, they're following the tickers and they're looking at the cases and they're just looking at the top line numbers, either for their state or for the country. 
And what they see right now is with the government, uh, uh, government shutdowns in a lot of big states and, and all the evasive actions that have been taken, we have one-tenth of one percent of the COVID-19 cases that we had in total, at least as reported, of H1N1 flu cases, swine flu cases back in 2009. One-tenth of one percent at this stage. And so people uh, understandably say, you're, you're really telling me that we could get to 60 million, 70 million, 100 million infections in this country? Yeah, that could be if we don't do what we need to do now. And this this virus is different, and this epidemic is different. This virus is very contagious, and it's contagious when people don't have symptoms. And that is unusual for a respiratory disease. I mean, I've I've been involved in so many epidemics, mostly in other countries, mm-hmm. and even with Ebola, with um, uh, flu itself, um, tuberculosis, these things are not infectious by people who um, are not sick. I mean, and so to have so many people who aren't sick who are infectious, this and with a disease that does cause lethality, death, and not just in older people, but there are um, dozens of intubated people in Italy right now and also in this country there are some as well, and that's increasing. So what I'm saying is this virus really is different. Dr. Slutkin, Not, I, want, yeah, I just want to hold it there. We'll come, we'll come right back and pick it up there. We're talking to Dr. Gary Slutkin, physician and epidemiologist, former director of intervention at the World Health Organization. More with Dr. Slutkin right after that. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Dr. Gary Slutkin, who's a physician and epidemiologist who's led efforts to combat epidemics across the globe, as he was discussing before the break tuberculosis, cholera, AIDS former director of intervention at the World Health Organization as well. He's currently tracking and advising governments on the spread of COVID-19. And uh, Dr. Slutkin, you were distinguishing the the uh, nature of this virus as compared to H1N1 in terms of uh, contagiousness. Um, I wanted to, to get your take on the importance of testing, too, because there's been some debate about that, not in terms of testing like we need to do testing, in terms of testing in ter- as we should be looking at that metric to tell us a lot. And I, I and we're at 400, according to Mike Pence, as of last night, we're at 420,000 tests uh, in America. And uh, they continue to say that it's only people who believe they have it uh, that should be tested, that should present themselves for testing. Uh, it's it, we should we don't need to at this point do testing uh, like random sample testing to get representative samples of large populations. We don't need to do testing of people who are otherwise healthy. Uh, and I wonder if you agree with that approach. Well, what um, uh, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks are saying and what a lot of the health people are saying is in this situation right now where tests are so limited, the most important use of them is the, to confirm whether a case is a coronavirus case or not, mm-hmm. and also for the health workers so they know whether they've been infected 
and there, I mean, thereby might infect other people whether they can stay on the job or not. So there, there's this limitation. And then the next use of, of tests would be to ideally to do contact tracing of someone who is a case to see whether the other people in their homes or the other people they've been, been involved with. And that's the ordinary way in which all epidemics are managed. Um, it ideally, you would then want to do some testing in the general public, as you might have suggested, not so much or really not for the worried well, but for to see where it is and where it isn't so you can get a magnitude of the problem. Like, for example, there's a lot of places where there are not known cases. Well, they may not have tested even people who think they have the flu or the health system thinks they have the flu. And so there you want to do some testing to see, you know, is there some here and where is it? So you can put your um, uh, public education and case and contact tracing resources there. Yeah, that's that's so what that's that's what I wanted to get to, like the ideal. We had this conversation with uh, Alex Azar, HHS secretary, yesterday on the show, and he was sort of uh, he was a little bit uh, prickly about uh, the ex- uh, testing expansion. And it wasn't that I understand the, the limits, the resource limitations. But as more testing is coming online, 50,000 a day up to 75,000 a day, I just want to understand what the progression is. So what, what's an ideal testing environment look like? So we really get a handle, like you said, on the magnitude of the problem and that that drill down. I think people are having a hard time getting their arms around. Right. Well, that's the progression. Cases, healthcare workers, contacts, and then to study where it is and what the trends are. Um, I wanted to speak, st- sticking on the testing thing for a minute, um, a Harvard uh, political economy professor, of all things, had the idea of, of uh, pooling tests. And now Governor uh, Pete Ricketts in Nebraska is doing that, where you can take the samples from five individuals, and if they and if it tests negative, then you know all of them are negative. If, if it tests positive, then you have to retest them individually. But he suggests that uh, that can improve their processing of tests by 400 a day, it makes it more efficient. Is that a is that a sensible way to approach testing, pooling tests? Well, I, I think there, the, the technical aspects of that for this particular test, I don't know. Okay. Um, it, it it's not an unreasonable approach if technically it's it would be accurate, um, given the the extreme scarcity of tests now. Still, even though it sounds like large numbers, there still is a scarcity. It's not something that we are ordinarily doing in epidemics. Even when we're doing um, mass surveys of populations, we're ordinarily getting a sample from every person and and then counting them um, test by test and able to do enough testing. Uh, I wanted to get your opinion, too, on the antivirals that are in clinical trials, uh, the prospective antivirals. And if you uh, share uh, some of the optimism about uh, uh, chloroquine as well as remdesivir and perhaps other treatments that are out there to have uh, um, to, 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 to be effective antiviral therapies for this virus based on some of the some of the individual case studies. Well, I, I, it's kind of a deja vu because we, we had um, been hoping um, in uh, many other diseases when we weren't getting them on time and people want to have that hope. And, and I also do, I, I seriously hope for one or more of these to work and there will be hundreds tested in various ways in some of the steps, you know, in, um, in test tubes and culture media and so on. And so 
but I, I don't see the enough evidence at all or anywhere near it right now to change what we have to do right now. Mm-hmm. And, and that machine is really gearing up, but, um, we, you know, we have to, in a way, um, hope for the best, but act um, for our actual situation is that we really need to now stop any further transmission. I mean, let's say we had something that was 50% effective or even 80% effective. We have an, such an overload of cases online right now in the pipeline and already in the hospitals in some places that we just simply have to focus our attention on the fact that you don't know who is infectious and not based on whether what they look like, whether they're coughing or not, they can still spread. You have to stay at home. If you want to take a walk, fine, but stay, um, make it short and stay at least six feet away from other people and, and not to be in groups and be careful around any surface. But really, this is the time to stop the transmission, any possible transmission anywhere in this country, anywhere, stop any possibility of it. And and then we will look and see where we really are in those places where you think everything is, where somebody thinks, not you specifically, but anyone sure. any in the audience, yeah. thinks everything's fine. You don't know everything's fine. He is Dr. Gary Slutkin, physician, epidemiologist, who has led efforts to combat epidemics the world over, including against tuberculosis, cholera, AIDS, former director of intervention at the World Health Organization. He is currently tracking and advising governments on COVID-19. He's also the founder of an organization called Cure Violence. Dr. Slutkin, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, how about a Trump v. Biden comparison? Trump versus Biden. Assuming that's still going to be the matchup when we're on the other side of this uh, viral outbreak and uh, focused on the November election. Uh, Trump at his task force meeting before he turned the podium over to Vice President Pence yesterday, uh, responding to reporter snottily uh, challenging him on the aspirational date. And again, that's what it is, an aspirational date. Can't get this through the minds of the D.C. press corps, at least many members of it, of uh, Easter for at least a partial reopening of the economy. Listen to this exchange. And then we'll have a Biden comparison. Lawmakers and economists on both sides of the aisle have said that reopening the country by Easter is not a good idea. What is that plan based on? Just so you understand. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. I think there are certain people that would like it not to open so quickly. I think there are certain people that would like it to do financially poorly because they think that would be very good as far as defeating me at the polls. And I don't know if that's so, but I do think it's so that a lot of that there are people in your profession that would like that to happen. I think it's very clear. I think it's very clear that there are people in your profession that write fake news. You do. She does. There are people in your profession that write fake news. They would love to see me for whatever reason, because we've done one hell of a job. Nobody's done the job that we've done. And it's lucky that you have this group here right now for this problem. Or you wouldn't even have a country left. Okay. 
Uh, I like the fact that he referenced the group at the end, talking about the team that he's assembled, the experts that he's relying upon. Um, and, uh, I, you know, we should make less about him, the electoral interest, and just set it straight away. This has nothing to do with my electoral interest. It's just the fact that you're, you in the press corps are in the business of fomenting hysteria rather than trying to at, provide value-added information to help a thoughtful discussion about a balancing between public health and economic health that are intertwined, don't you know, uh, as part of our national conversation. That's the issue. That's the issue. But uh, his uh, dealing with a hostile media versus Joe Biden dealing with a friendly media. Listen to this. uh, Joe Biden responding to a friendly reporter during a campaign orchestrated live streaming event. And I noticed that the president's numbers of the public have gone up in handling this crisis, but they haven't gone up in terms of his presidency. Uh, Gallup did show he is now at 49 percent job approval, which is a reversal from a few weeks ago. So it's just an interesting development. It does suggest that the American people see him as a stronger leader than you've been maybe characterizing him. Well, I hope that he does. He's so strong that he's up way above that because we need the help now. Nice cover, Joe. Uh, for when when you don't have uh, or you run out of uh, entertaining videos of Joe Biden to watch, uh, here's another recommendation: NoSafeSpaces.com. Our friend uh, Dennis Prager, friend and colleague Dennis Prager, along with Adam Carolla, No Safe Spaces uh, is the number one political documentary of 2019. Uh, I saw it in the theater; it was excellent. I uh, can't see it in the theaters very many places in this country, so watch it at home. It is available for a limited time at NoSafeSpaces.com. Illustrating how America is exceptional, shows how our foundational American values have come under attack and how you can push back against those attacking them, like members of the D.C. press corps, like President Trump does. I'm Dan Proft. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Again, follow us at danproftshow.com. It's where you can uh, download podcasts as well as, of course, at iTunes and Spotify. Uh, social media at Dan Proft Show, both on Facebook and Twitter, Proft Dan at Instagram. Uh, we're going to be speaking with uh, Michael Lynn momentarily. He's got an idea about what uh, the federal government should do to address the supply side hammering the American economy is taking. But uh, before then, and we'll get uh, Professor Lin's reaction to this as well, a rather remarkable piece in the dispatch by uh, Paul Miller, who's a uh, professor of international affairs at Georgetown, on uh, the intel community, what they uh, modeled about the possibility of a pandemic 16 years before the COVID outbreak. National Intelligence Council warning that a pandemic could, quote, put a halt to global travel and trade during an extended period, prompting governments to expend enormous resources on overwhelmed health sectors. Uh, they were describing you know, what the world would look like a decade or two into the future were uh, the world struck with the pandemic. It is uh, remarkably prescient, uh, uh, even more so than a Dean Kuhn's novel. I know that's been circulating on the Internet. Uh, as uh, Professor Miller describes. And yet, uh, despite this um, intelligence model and uh, uh, sort of a gaming of what that could look like, a pandemic, we find that we didn't even respond after the H1N1 
as was recommended by professionals after that uh, virus had subsided. Swine flu back in 2009 drew down about 100 million N95 per- protective respiratory uh, respirator masks. This is uh, Fred Lucas uh, detailing it over at the Daily Signal. Uh, HHS Secretary Alex Azar testifying to Congress in February noted the federal stockpile had 12 million of the N95 masks and 30 million surgical masks in all. This was after a drawdown of 100 million masks in 2009 and one of the recommendations of an H1N task force after the fact to the Obama administration was replacing the masks in the national stockpile. Newt Gingrich tweeting out a couple of days ago, can Vice President Biden explain why the Obama administration did not order the N95 masks to replace the 100 million used in the Asian flu epidemic? Experts advise replacing them, but Obama-Biden team failed to buy them. Shortage starts with them and calling on him to explain it. I'm not so interested in pointing fingers because the best and brightest in the world didn't predict the nature of this and didn't beat the drum loudly enough for the sort of resources that would be required with this eventuality that has befallen us. But it is interesting to note, nonetheless, recommendations weren't taken. Uh, The modeling wasn't uh, leveled up, at least to, to the policymaker level with the uh, with the, the urgency of uh, such that preparations were made. Um, and so this was unforeseen by certainly politicians, of course, they're not experts, but the actual experts. And so I just put provide this additional context because the effort by the D.C. press corps to put this all at the, the testing, for example, or the, uh, the, the, the PPE shortages all at the doorstop of Trump is really meritless and it's cheap shotting. And I'm not going to cheap shot uh, Obama and Biden. I'm not going to cheap shot Trump. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined, as I said, by Michael Lind, who's a professor of practice at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, fellow at New America and the author of the new book, which you should check out. It's very good, provocative, timely. The New Class War, Saving Democracy from the Managerial Elite. Professor Lind, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. So um, what I was just discussing sort of dovetails into your uh, recommendation, uh, that and yours and that of a colleague. But but before we even get to that, what about this? What about the shortages that were recommended against that I was detailing, as well as this intelligence estimate, if you will, back in 2004 about what a pandemic could look like if it uh, afflicted the globe? Well, sadly, I, I think this kind of uh, under-preparation is an ev- inevitable in, in really in all countries for psychological reasons, uh, if nothing else. Uh, if you have someone saying we should spend significant amounts of money now uh, on, in anticipation of a very low probability event, then, then those experts, even if they're right, are going to be ignored for the most part. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at the central problem we're facing, which is actually a material, physical, real-world problem. It's the shortage of respirator masks, as you noted, ventilators, ICU beds, and so on. There are two ways you can prepare for that. One is to stockpile vast numbers in advance, and that's very difficult to do politically in a sustainable way, because after a few years go by and there's no pandemic, then people are going to say, why are we spending all of this money? You know, let's sell the stockpiles. Let's let's uh, save the taxpayers some money. The alternate method, which is as much uh, 
more sustainable is to maintain manufacturing surge capacity in your own country. Uh, now, that I say it's more sustainable. It's still politically difficult because you have to have the government uh, requiring a certain amount of uh, ability of uh, factories to ramp up, even in the absence of current demand. But I think uh, uh, right now, uh, rather than, uh, uh, you know, as you say, cheap shot uh, different parties about the lack of stockpiling, we should really be focusing on building up our manufacturing capacity in a rapid surge. And uh, what you suggest, uh, per your piece at uh, The Spectator, is uh, to uh, sort of push forward the War Finance Corporation from World War II and uh, create a Health Finance Corporation. Please describe. Well, yes. Uh, uh, my uh, colleague James K. Galbraith of the LBJ School of Public Affairs and I uh, both initially proposed this in the Boston Globe, uh, and it's received uh, some attention from the left, the right, and the center. Uh, our argument is basically this is a war. It is not a conventional financial uh, crisis or recession. We're treating this as though it were a replay of the Great Recession of 2008, uh, and you have essentially a TARP bailout every couple of weeks, and then people argue about what's in the bailout. Mm -hmm. Well, that's very important, uh, uh, dealing with the economic fallout of this, but the problem is really more like an alien invasion, where you have the alien invaders in every state and uh, many cities going around wantonly killing Americans. And when the aliens invade the entire planet, the first thing you want to do is have people shelter in place. The second is to have uh, the government identify the aliens, and we do that through tracing uh, and contact tracing and through testing. And the third thing is you zap the aliens with uh, treatment or down the road with vaccines. And, you know, our concern is that we're so focused on the economic fallout that we're not actually fighting the main war. And the main war requires ramping up medical production so that the frontline soldiers in the war, the medical personnel, do not run out of masks and respirators and other equipment. Uh, President Trump, in, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, and, and so just briefly, you know, we argue that this cannot be done in an efficient way by Congress using ordinary budgetary appropriations processes where the Democrats try to put in favors for their side and the Republicans want favors for their side. This just takes far too long. What we need to do is emulate the model of the U.S. government in World War I and World War II. In World War I, we had the War Finance Corporation. It was a wholly owned government corporation uh, that, that mobilized the economy for war. That was the model in the Depression for the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, which during World War II uh, created seven subsidiary uh, industrial corporations, including the Defense Production Corporation, to mobilize industry. Uh, so we argue that Congress should delegate uh, the power to mobilize American industry and the medical industry in particular, medical manufacturing, to what we call a health finance corporation. It would be accountable to the government, uh, but it would not be subject to this constant back and forth that has been paralyzing uh, funding and decision-making in Congress. Uh, when we come back, I, I want you to answer the, the, the question uh, about um, the Defense Production Act and uh, why would we need to intercede and uh, and take over corporations, seize control 
a nationalized industry has been advocated by some on the left when you're getting uh, you're otherwise getting cooperation, preemptive cooperation in many instances from private industry. Uh, we'll put that question to Michael Lynn, professor of practice at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at UT Austin, author of The New Class War, Saving Democracy from the Managerial Elite. Be back with more Michael Lind right after this. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Professor Michael Lynn, Professor of Practice at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at UT Austin fellow at New America and the author of the book, The New Class War, Saving Democracy from the Managerial Elite. We were discussing uh, his idea, along with his colleague, uh, economist James Galbraith, to uh, create a health finance corporation modeled after the uh, public corporations created during World War I, World War II for ramp up of production to fund and, and, uh, and provide the resources for the war efforts in uh, those instances. And, and um, this the Defense Production Act, you had Peter Navarro, one of Trump's economic advisors, trade advisors, uh, uh, address the nation at a briefing the other day talking about what he's doing with respect to mobilizing industry under the auspices of the Defense Production Act. And they've got this order and they've got uh, this corporation doing uh, these things. And you've got distilleries converting to making hand sanitizer and 3M making uh, making masks and so on and so forth. And so the question is. You know, why would you need to create a public corporation when you're otherwise getting cooperation, in some cases, preemptive cooperation from these big players in private industry? Well, there are two answers. The first is that the Defense Production Act doesn't require the president to nationalize industry. It just uh, uh, gives the federal government a number of tools. So, for example, if you look at 3M, uh, the 3M Corporation is really ramping up production of masks. Uh, in in a terrific way. And if they're going to do that, yeah, sure, fine. Uh, The government should pay for it and reimburse them for it, but otherwise you don't intervene. Uh, The reason you want something like the Health Finance Corporation is if a key medical supplier in the supply chain is going to go bankrupt in the next 24 or 48 hours, you want an agile entity able to, to bail out that one company rather than have the supply chain crash. Uh, and that's not going to be done by negotiations between President Trump, uh, you know, Majority Leader McConnell, and, and House Speaker Pelosi spread out over a week. Uh, now, can it be done by the Trump administration? Uh, it, well, it, it can be, but the problem is we're so polarized now that all of these decisions are going to seem partisan. So the way that was avoided in World War II and World War I was to have a bipartisan oversight boards of these publicly owned corporations so that inevitably decisions will be criticized, but it won't be seen 
as the Republicans doing this or the Democrats doing that. So it's it's a, it's like the Legal Services Corporation, uh, which provides uh, legal services for indigent uh, indigent individuals in in this country. Um, you know, you never hear about it because it's just part of sort of the funding the government does on a rolling basis, on an annualized basis. They have a specific mission and they stay in their lane, uh, governed by a bipartisan board, like you say. And so they're not uh, they're not usurping anybody in the private sector. They're just providing a particular resource for uh, a particular population. And that's something along the lines of what you'd be advocating here. Right. In fact, the uh, Small Business Administration uh, was spun out of the original World War II era Reconstruction Finance Corporation. And and it has broad powers. It has the ability to bail out uh, particular firms, small firms and medium-sized firms by different means. It, It can have loan guarantees it can have their grant programs and so on. The advantage of a government corporation as opposed to a conventional government agency is that since it's a corporation, even though the government owns it, it can issue shares. Uh, and, it can, and, and so it can, uh, uh, it, it can also borrow from capital markets. So you can crowd in a lot of private capital that's looking for a safe long-term investment uh, to, to supplement the seed capital that is provided by the government. So you can ramp up the resources that it can use to spend very quick, quickly, and you do this without every single dollar spent by the entity uh, going through congressional appropriations through this this uh, unfortunately slow and divisive process that we've seen. Another model for the Health Finance Corporation that uh, James Galbraith and I have proposed is the Resolution Trust Corporation, which cleaned up the savings and loan mess in the late 80s and early 90s. That was a government corporation. It was temporary. Uh, it, it had one mission, which was to uh, liquidate a, a lot of the uh, failing savings and loans and uh, uh, to try to stabilize that collapse in that section of the financial sector. And it issued its own bonds, uh, backed by the full faith and credit of the government to raise money. And by most accounts, that was a success. And it had wound up the SNL crisis by the mid '90s. But do you do you worry about uh, two potential pitfalls: uh, the sort of rent seeking that you get with the export import bank, or the moral hazards that are created by, say, a Fannie and Freddie? Well, I do worry about the rent seeking. I don't worry about the moral hazard, which I'll, I'll tell, uh, explain in a minute. The rent seeking, I think, is less likely to occur. Uh, the favoritism. Uh, if you have this kind of bipartisan public corporation, rather than uh, if you have a kind of a secretive process in which the the, the Trump administration and the Treasury, for example, is deciding who gets funds and who does not, even if they're they're totally non-corrupt, they will be accused of favoritism. So it would be in the interest of the Trump administration to support this kind of transparent entity. The reason I'm not worried about moral hazard is. Uh, unlike conventional bailouts where there was some human cap- culpability causing it, uh, this is a microorganism. Uh, you know, this, this is an act of God. It is a natural disaster. Mm-hmm. And it's just not plausible to say, well, corporations were at fault. They should have foreseen this. Individuals were at fault. Unless we're really going to say that all Americans should have stockpiled six months of supply like disaster preppers and, and say that corporate America should have spent trillions of dollars on pandemic insurance, 
we we have to say, you know, they were not to blame. And if we get over this, we may want to have a more robust system with more precautions. But but this is not, a, as I said, this is not a conventional recession or depression. It's an alien invasion. But, but so, And the usual moral hazard arguments don't apply. But so the, so the animating charter then for this uh, conceptual health finance corporation would be limited to pandemics. I mean, you, you always worry about mission creep with government enterprises. It would be temporary and rechartered by Congress, uh, and uh, you know for maybe I don't know a few four or five years to clean up the mess. And at that point, uh, they can decide whether uh, to recharter it or not. In the case of the RFC, the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, they decided not to after about a decade and a half, uh, uh, almost two decades, uh, and Congress uh, abolished it in 1953. The, R- the RTC, the Resolution Trust Corporation, that cleaned up the SNL crisis. Uh, you know, essentially did its job and, and was phased out. So, so I'm, 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 I just don't think we need to worry that much about this being a massive big government uh, expansion, particularly because its its charter would be limited to medical supply chain uh, issues and also to bailing out state and local governments and solely in the medical area. For example, giving them loans or grants to build out hospitals in an emergency. It is a thought-provoking idea. I appreciate it. He is Professor Michael Lynn, Professor of Practice at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at UT Austin, Fellow at New America, and the book, The New Class War, Saving Democracy from the Managerial Elite. Michael Lynn, pleasure as always. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dan. Take care. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. And I want to go back to something Larry Kudlow, President Trump's chief economic advisor, had to say yesterday prior to the uh, final version of the disaster aid package, if you will, being passed by the Senate in the wee hours of the morning today, Thursday, Uh, Larry Kudlow on both aspects of it. He's the sort of been the only one. It wasn't brought up really at the briefing last night. Uh, The uh, only one talking about uh, uh, both aspects of the government intervention, the fiscal side, the two trillion dollars, as well as the Fed side, the monetary side, four trillion dollars. If we can target zones where uh, the virus is uh, less prevalent. Things are safe. We're not abandoning the uh, health uh, professionals' advice, but there is a clamor to try to reopen the economy and perhaps I'll call it less of a shut-in. And uh, so that's one piece that's yet to be determined, but it's one piece that's being looked at. We, we still going to need the assistance because... In the next week or two or three, you're still going to have a lot of hot zones. You're still going to a lot of have shut-ins. There's no miracle here. We're not just you know flipping a switch. So the assistance is so vital. Let me tell you, you know, it's two trillion dollars program and four trillion dollars of lending power from the Fed. That's a six trillion dollar package. And by the way, the Fed can't act fully unless we pass phase two, because phase two contains the 
uh, increase in the exchange stabilization fund, which is the equity piece for the Fed lending. Uh, so the, we, the U.S. government is the guarantor, not the Fed. And uh, so now the Fed can act. And what does that look like? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Michael Hendricks, director of state and local policy at the Manhattan Institute. Michael, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Pleasure to be with you this morning. Uh, well, the Fed, uh, once the House passes uh, the, uh, uh, the the bill that was passed, the Senate 96 nothing, will uh, be able to act, as Larry Kudlow said. And what does that action entail and uh, what does it provide? Well, part of what it provides is not only unprecedented support for our financial markets, but one thing I'm particularly paying attention to is its support for a municipal bond market. This is a $3.8 trillion market that consists of state and local debt, both debt that is backed by taxpayer revenue, but also by the revenue uh, that comes from our airports and and other forms of public goods, but also debt provided by or to private actors uh, that build things like hospitals that offer a public benefit. And what's been happening in that market for the past handful of weeks is something unprecedented in our history and the history of that market. And that's basically an utter collapse in it, in demand for that debt. And as a result, skyrocketing uh, interest rates and the potential that many of us will be paying and many of our governments will be paying a lot more to fund basic services and basic investments than ever before. And what the Fed was doing is saying, we are going to support that market. Credit will be extended to our states and to our cities, not just through a stimulus package that was passed today. Well, right. And, and in that, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that aid package, uh, with respect to the airlines, you've got a $58 billion bailout, $29 billion in grants, $29 billion in loans, and a reprieve from paying three of their major excise taxes the price of, on the price of a ticket, the fuel tax, and the cargo tax, those revenue streams that support those uh, debt payments. Right. And so what we're seeing is every side of the transaction in the debt market, whether it's for corporate debt or any other kind of debt, debt on uh, debt covering households and properties, but also debt for states and localities, we're seeing both sides of the transaction being pinched and pulled in various ways. And so what the federal government is trying to do is to say, if you can't make your payments, we're going to help you make your payments. If you're on the other side receiving those payments, we want to make sure that you're not going to become insolvent or that you face some sort of liquidity crisis. The, the federal government is having this coordinated response. Whether it works and whether it's sufficiently coordinated will, is yet to be determined. Well, and, and again, and you know, I'll tell you what, when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about the $1.5 trillion in unfunded pension and post-employment benefits at the municipal level. And, uh, you know, the real reason they're propping up the market is so that uh, governments that are underwater can continue to borrow to keep their houses of cards with respect to pension and, and unfunded health care benefits afloat is what I or erect, I guess it would be to continue the metaphor is what I'm uh, uh, what I'm suggesting. And we'll get your reaction right after this. More with Michael Hendricks, director of state and local policy at the Manhattan Institute. So give a little bit.
fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We're talking to Michael Hendricks, the Director of State and Local Policy at the Manhattan Institute. And, uh, Michael, uh, the... um, $3.8 $3.8 trillion municipal bond market is uh, one of the things you're looking at in terms of the Fed propping it up after it cratered like the rest of the market. You know, the reasons behind that, not only to ensure obligations that have already been incurred, but in my estimation, it's also to allow governments at the state and local level the ability to continue to borrow, to continue to prop up woefully underfunded pension systems and also unfunded health care liabilities states like well illinois at the top of the list but also new york and california and kentucky particularly on the pension side new york connecticut illinois kentucky they can't borrow then uh, the pension reckoning day is going to come a lot sooner than than a lot of these state and local officials are prepared to act experts have been warning for years that a coming pension crisis for our public pensions is coming and that moment is here now Right now, state and local governments are seeing their tax revenues hammered. At the same time, that the demands on those resources are growing. Some of those demands and resources will have to be met through borrowing. And some states are better equipped to borrow and to spend than others are. A state like California has an enormous rainy day fund, even though their volatile income tax receipts are going to hammer their ultimate tax revenues at the end of this year. But a state like Illinois, which has the worst pension crisis in America, has savings that constitute only literally just a few minutes of budget spending. And so when you have this kind of underfunded and overstretched pension obligation that leaves you very unprepared for a crisis like we face today. And so states will have to make sure that they're prepared to help their citizens who are unemployed to be able to provide some sort of support to to small businesses that are at risk or are currently going under. My worry is that a place like Illinois has not been prepared and is not prepared and continues to be underprepared going forward for that sort of immediate need that we face now today. Well, and if there is yet another version of of a disaster relief package, which uh, has already being discussed uh, next month or the month after, you can be sure that states are going to be lining up for more than the $150 billion that was uh, allocated for state and local governments in this disaster relief package for exactly that reason. I mean, you know, Illinois' unfunded pension liabilities, as you know, uh, alone are $130 billion, just that one state. And I, I don't least. think and, and I don't think there's going to be a lot of states who have fully funded pensions, Wisconsin, which has effectively a fully funded pension system. I don't think uh, cheeseheads are going to be rushing to say, oh, yeah, I want my tax dollars to go to fund unfunded pension liabilities in in Illinois and Kentucky and New Jersey and Connecticut. No, absolutely not. But but it is absolutely right that once Washington, D.C. commits to spending trillions of dollars, you better believe state and local governments are going to line up to receive their share of that. We're seeing that very same argument going on right now. In New York, where uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo is claiming that the state of New York is going to receive, quote unquote, only just under four billion dollars from this two trillion dollar package. Whereas Senator Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer is saying, no, no, you're going to get 40 billion dollars worth of federal funding. Either way, once you start counting a billion here and a billion there, it's a lot of money. 
And every state, no matter the amount that they're going to receive, is going to say it's not enough. And taxpayers are going to also be saying not only is it enough for the kind of needs that I have now, the, the, the fact that I find myself unemployed, but also question whether we're spending too much on promises that we should never have made. Well, that's it, right? This is the opportunity where uh, politicians who uh, are, are the current uh, beneficiaries of generations of terrible public policy and unfunded promises. Uh, this is where they paper that try to paper over some of that by getting funding under the auspices of uh, COVID-19 response. That's right. And, and again, to point to New York, we have our Metropolitan Transit Authority, this MTA that governs our, our subways and some of our railroads and buses. It's going to receive a $3.8 billion bailout. This is for an organization that staffs, you know, underground diggers with 25 people when you maybe only need five of them. And each one of them are getting six-figure payouts every year. And unsurprisingly, there's a huge and ongoing deficit for this, for this authority, for the MTA. And the federal government intends to paper that over. And that's fine. When you have 20% every year of its annual revenue going to pay its debt obligations, and you see at least an 80 90% drop in ridership, of course you're going to need to bail out. And a lot of people here in New York think that that's quite reasonable. But once you start talking about a bailout to cover up past mistakes or a bailout that will be spent unwisely, then I start to think you, you see taxpayers really asking tough questions, as they should. So one thing that every state and every locality should ask is if they're going and, and their citizens should ask is if we're going to get a huge influx of money from D.C. or from the state, how is that money being spent? The money here, how is it being spent is being spent in the right way to the right ends for the right people. When we come back, I want to get to a piece that Michael Hendricks wrote in National Review about that uh, Washington State nursing home that was at the epicenter of the outbreak as well. Significant number of illnesses and deaths. We're speaking with Michael Hendricks, director of state and local policy at the Manhattan Institute. Flying off our conversation with Michael Hendricks, I know the focus during this pandemic and the responses on um, difficulties and the challenges that we have, uh, the uh, the people that have been lost, as we were discussing at the Washington State Nursing Home, as well as, uh, you know, the problems that are on the horizon. How are we going to get past them? Well, now's the time to remember that uh, America is exceptional. The response, even amid all the problems and the stops and starts, has been exceptional because we're an exceptional country, with exceptional people. And that's the message that President Trump has been attempting to deliver. Same thing with Vice President Pence. Well, as you look to take a mental health break from all things COVID-19 related, uh, watch a film, just uh, veg out. Uh, let me make a recommendation. I saw it in the theater. You can't do that now, but you can at nosafespaces.com. I'm talking about Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla's film, No Safe Spaces, which is now available to watch for limited time at, again, nosafespaces.com. This is a film that illustrates how exceptional America is, even in difficult times. It shows how our foundational American values have come under attack and how you can fight back or certainly live them out during difficult times. It's a must-see for any American, young or old. Dennis Prager, Adam Carolla, commentary from Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson, Tim Allen, even personalities on the left, including Van Jones, Cornell West, and Alan Dershowitz. So it's also sort of post-partisan and post-ideological, these discussions, which is a positive, productive discussion to have in this time. Again, for a limited time, check out No Safe Spaces at nosafespaces.com. 
before you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Michael Hendricks, Director of State and Local Policy at the Manhattan Institute. And Michael, I wanted to get off uh, data crunching and the... um, the uh, sterile discussions of unfunded pension liabilities. This piece you wrote in National View about the Washington State nursing home that became a center of the COVID-19 outbreak and and uh, your your distillation of what happened there and, uh, you know, what it means as we reflect even in real time on uh, how our authorities have uh, prepared us for something like this and how they're responding in the moment. When I began my research on this story, I found that at the time that nearly half of all coronavirus deaths were traced to a single, otherwise unremarkable nursing home in the suburbs of Seattle. And how that nursing home not only became the epicenter of a pandemic and then was able to spread across the United States intrigued me and concerned me. And once I started to look into it, the story horrified me. What I found was that People not only within this life care center in Kirkland, Washington, again, about in the suburbs of of Seattle, not only um, did not take this crisis seriously, they knew that there was some sort of quote-unquote respiratory virus spreading through their facility and seemed to do very little about it. But what really worried me was the reaction from the county public health officials, from the city, and even from the U.S. government. We saw that patients had been getting sick for even as long as a month within this life care center. Loved ones were reaching out to the Seattle and King County Public Health Department demanding an investigation, and according to the LA Times, officials there were just uninterested. And meanwhile, federal officials were just simply swapping this life care center with paperwork and not even giving them the sort of help that they desperately needed. By the time that this was all uh, quote-unquote over, when, when, when county officials and even federal officials began to sweep into the life care center, Four residents had died, and now we're talking about over 30 who have died. We've talked about uh, many more in quarantine, people who are in uh, fire departments in, in Kirkland who are, who are being held in quarantine. And, and, and from this one life care center, uh, uh, untold thousands more became sick in nursing facilities and even cruise ships and even in states all across the country because of this one this one nursing care facility did not take it seriously, but most importantly, government officials did not take this outbreak seriously. And as a result, it spread across the United States. I think if there's one thing that we can take from this, it's that our authorities failed us at the initial start of this outbreak. And I think that we can applaud our officials for taking it seriously right now and for taking the measures to test and to even quarantine. But so much of this, is too little, too late. And if we don't learn the lessons from how this coronavirus uh, pandemic started, we'll never be able to get a handle on it now. We'll be able to prevent future pandemics, which are surely going to be in our future, from affecting the rest of us again in the same way. He is Michael Hendricks. He's the director of state and local policy at the Manhattan Institute. Michael, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. 
The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Jobless claims number is in, and the uh, booby prize goes to Goldman Sachs. 3.2 million filers. That is uh, a record. Actually, uh, 3.28 million, to be specific. That is a uh, an American record, uh, not one we ever wanted to have. The, the last greatest amount was uh, close to 700,000 in 1982. Now... A little bit of apples to oranges because population growth over that time. But the population hasn't grown uh, 5X. So, no, there's something uh, happening here, and it's not good. And this goes to, of course, the disaster aid relief package the Senate voted up 96 to nothing in the early morning hours today, and the House will take up tomorrow. And here's what President Trump had to say it at his briefing last night. This is certainly, in terms of dollars, by far and away the biggest ever, ever done. And that's a tremendous thing because a lot of this money goes to jobs, 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 and families, families, families. The Senate bill, as you know, includes $350 billion in job retention loans for small businesses with loan forgiveness available for businesses that continue paying their workers. They continue paying their workers. That's what we want. We want them to keep their workers and pay their workers. This will help businesses keep workers in the payroll and allow our economy to quickly accelerate as soon as we defeat the virus. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Brian Westbury, chief economist, First Trust Portfolios, economics editor for the American Spectator, contributor to Fox Business, CNBC, Bloomberg TV. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, Dan. It's great to be with you. Your reaction to um, the jobless claims, which can't be that unexpected, maybe the, the volume, but within a range, uh, number one, and then, of course, number two, against the backdrop of what the Senate is has moved and what the House will move to the president's desk tomorrow. These numbers today aren't a shock, and they're they're just the beginning. You know, the average small business in America, I mean, we, we're, we're kind of guesstimating at this, but surveys have been done uh, that say the average small business has about 27 days of cash if they shut down completely. And the only way to survive is to furlough workers. And then the only question we had was whether they were going to show up in initial unemployment claims this week or next week or the week after. And it looks like uh, it happened very, very quickly. I mean, businesses want to survive. Uh, They want to keep their workers. They want to stay open. But when the government forces them to shut down, uh, they have really have no choice. And so, you know, this is almost, this is unfortunate for me. I'm a libertarian. I like smaller government. But when the government forces you to shut down, then it forces itself to come in and uh, give you a bridge loan to make it through this period. And and so, you know, $2 trillion, uh, it just depends on how long the economy stays shut down, uh, whether it's enough or not. But it certainly will offset uh, damage to workers, keep some of these businesses alive. Uh, they won't all stay alive. Uh, if we're shut down for t- even two or three weeks, we're going to lose a percentage of this economy. And the longer we stay shut down, uh, the more 
percentage of the economy we will lose. Talk about some of the specific top line elements of the uh, $2 trillion package before we get to the Fed side of it. Uh, the uh, retaining payroll piece, as you said, forcing business to shut down. Okay, you force me to shut down. You want me to keep employees on my payroll. Then you come in and cover my payroll. Here's the way right. they're approaching that. Businesses get a tax credit for keeping idle workers on their payrolls. As so long as the businesses meet certain criteria, they would get a refund for half of what they spend on wages up to five grand per worker. To qualify, businesses have to prove they took a 50% loss quarter over quarter in the past you know, this year versus previous years. And to keep companies from double dipping, employers won't be able to get special SBA loans if they opt for this tax credit proposal in this relief package. Is that the way you would have structured it? I mean, it is so hard. They tried to be at least, you know, fair. There are some companies, Facebook, Microsoft, Apple, who have hundreds of billions of dollars and are able to stay open for a lot longer. Others, the airlines, they're bleeding cash uh, like there's no tomorrow, right? So how do you do this and be fair uh, to the companies that got hurt the worst. And I and I am assuming, and I haven't read every single little detail, that they, that they tried to do that as best they could. Here's the problem. This money is not going to be out there tomorrow. Um, it's going to take weeks, if not, you know, I mean, people well, talk about how long the shutdown will last. Well, my question is how long the you know, it takes to get money out there. Mnuchin, it takes, yeah. Mnuchin takes said, a long time. Mnuchin said at the briefing, now we'll see if this actually comes to pass, just because you pronounce it doesn't make it true, but he said uh, they should have the process in place by end of next week and one-day turnaround on these loans uh, once the process is in place. That's what he said. Yeah, so two weeks, I mean, two weeks is a a long time for, for and, and remember, it's yeah. already been a two weeks, so it's really a month. Um, and that's a long time for a business to hang on. Uh, there's also, you know, if you if you think about a restaurant, uh, they 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 pay a, a wage, but then 50, 60, 70 percent of the pay of a waiter, uh, you know, is is often in tips. And so that that can't be. I mean, how do you make that up? And so what we did is we tried to. Uh, boost the value of unemployment benefits to make up for some of that. But this is the problem with any kind of legislation that's put together like this, something so huge. They're just throwing as much money as they can to limit the damage. And I think it will it will help mitigate that damage, but it won't stop it from happening. The longer we stay closed, the worse this thing gets. And and, you know, it's it's I mean, I know it's a hard calculation to make, uh, health versus the economy, but I think one of the things that people aren't considering uh, enough is is the damage that can be done by uh, recessions or depressions. You know, the highest suicide rates in the United States were during the Great Depression. Uh, Recessions kill people, and in the long run, Less wealth in an economy means we have a less uh, a, a less robust healthcare system. So you look at Italy and and Spain. I mean, they have been growing slowly, partly because they have huge governments and lots of red tape uh, for for decades, and and they don't have healthcare systems that are nearly as robust as ours. And and we're we're still worried about ours. But but imagine, you know, having half the ICU beds that we have per capita. And that's what we're looking at in Europe. And the problems there are a lot worse. So 
you know, this is a balancing act. Do we grow the economy or do we, you know, you can't stop the spread of a virus. You can, you can dampen it, but you can't stop it. And so we're, we're paying a huge price for this and only time will tell. We'll have to look back and, and decide whether it was worth it. But, but losing our freedoms and growing the government by 50% overnight, uh, it's, I think that's a pretty it, – it, it's got some dangers in and of itself. Uh, in case Larry Kudlow is listening, I want to uh, reference back to a piece you made uh, – you uh, co-authored with Amity Schles about uh, the things that you could do that are growth-oriented. And not that Larry needs instruction, but maybe he needs a little impetus to be more vociferous in those meetings with the president about doing something more than just Keynesian demand-side, quote-unquote, stimuli – and uh, right. doing something on, on tax policy that would be pro-growth, like slashing the capital gains tax for the foreseeable future. Exactly. Uh, you know, when you, when, you, when you think about how we come out of this, because we will eventually, do we want to come out with a better set of policies, like lower capital gains tax rates? Uh, one of the things that Amity and I talked about in our piece was, hey, let's take this uh, opportunity to create individual accounts in Social Security. I mean, remember, right now that Social Security system is buying bonds that yield 0.7%. And, and we have an opportunity for individuals to own stocks at really cheap prices. Um, and if we, if we divide it, I don't want the government to buy stocks in America, uh, but but allowing individuals to put stocks in their Social Security account would be a great thing. And then also, we have such low interest rates, let's refinance our debt with 50-year bonds, 100-year bonds at these extremely low rates. Um, and that will, remember, we have to pay all $2 trillion of this back, plus the $22 trillion uh, from before this. And so, so I, mean, I mean, I know we carry it, but the carrying cost we could reduce basically forever, the rest of our lifetimes, uh, if we were to issue longer-term bonds. So, but, but nothing we've done now is, is longer-term oriented. It's just to offset the damage of the shutdown. He is Brian Westbury, Chief Economist, First Trust Economics Editor for the American Spectator, contributor to Fox Business, CNBC, and Bloomberg TV, and a good wheat night. Brian Westbury, yeah. thanks for joining us. Appreciate yeah. it. Thank you, Dan. Have a great day. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show and uh, governor andrew cuomo getting a lot of attention with his daily briefings for obvious reasons one because it's new york state uh, two, because this is the epicenter of the viral outbreak with uh, nearly half of the cases in the country, uh, more than half of the cases in the country, New York and New Jersey, but overwhelmingly half of the COVID-19 infections, uh, almost half of the COVID-19 in, uh, uh, infections in New York State by a factor of 7x over New Jersey, by a factor of 15x over Washington and California. Uh, and uh, in part, over the last two days, both on Wednesday and uh, today, Thursday, Andrew Cuomo has been complaining about uh, the federal 
funding New York isn't receiving as part of the disaster aid relief package that passed the Senate 96 to nothing in the early morning hours today. He's uh, scheduled to get four billion. Uh, Chuck Schumer says that's more like 40 to 60 billion based on all the things the federal government is paying for that Andrew Cuomo is not counting. But okay, Andrew Cuomo on Wednesday about what they were uh, New York State is scheduled to receive and why it's insufficient. The two trillion dollar bill. What does it mean for New York State government? It means three point eight billion dollars. Three point eight billion dollars sounds like a lot of money. Uh, Rob Mejica, the budget director, can talk you through the numbers. But we're looking at a shortfall, revenue shortfall, of uh, $9, $10, 15000000000 dollars. Uh, response to this virus has probably already cost us $1 billion. It will probably cost us several billion dollars when we're done. Uh, New York City only gets $1.3 billion from this package. Uh, That is a drop in the bucket as to need. I spoke to our House delegation, congressional delegation, this morning. I said to them, this doesn't do it. You know, I understand the uh, Senate theory and the Republican theory, but we need the House uh, to make adjustments. In the House bill that went over, New York State got $17 billion. In the Senate bill, we get $3.8 billion dollars. Uh, And, well, you just a big spending. We're not a big spending state. I cut taxes every year. I have the lowest growth rate of the state budget in modern political history. Okay, Uh, so we are frugal and we are efficient. I'm telling you, these numbers don't work. Well, let's talk about their frugal, uh, the frugality and and efficiency for a second. Uh, As we were talking about with uh, Michael Hendricks earlier in the show from the Manhattan Institute, this is an opportunity that politicians around the country, not just Cuomo, New York, but around the country, but particularly in states that uh, have uh, big financial problems and had them prior to the COVID-19 outbreak. Opportunity for them to get in line, to get resources that will paper over some of those other financial difficulties they were experiencing prior to the viral outbreak. And uh, that's in part happening here. The expense of the response notwithstanding, you'll note, and I doubt that Andrew Cuomo is including that in his calculus, uh, President Trump saying both to California as well as New York and Washington State for that matter, the National Guard that he authorized, that'll be picked up by the federal government. The, uh, The medical ships effectively that are, being deployed to California and New York, those coasts, that'll be picked up by the federal government. That factored in to the federal support that uh, Cuomo is getting in addition to all the the expense of all the personal protective equipment. Um, and, and, and to that end, uh, again, uh, some of the financial problems, generations of terrible public policy choices by Republicans and Democrats in New York. I'm familiar with that concept in Illinois. Generations and generations of terrible public policy decisions that are now, uh, you know, coming to the fore. I mean, they've always been there, but uh, but now with the revenue loss experiencing uh, experienced by states because of business closures uh, and the anticipated revenue loss with respect to tax filings, uh, now they're really going to start feeling the crunch of the unfunded liabilities and the hostile business climates, aren't they? 
but just so we get a handle on New York State, uh, Truth and Accounting, an organization that looks at uh, accounting practices of state and local governments around the country, puts New York at 42nd in the nation in debt per capita. Forty uh, second being, you know, number one being good, number fifty being bad. New York State is forty second with more than twenty thousand dollars in debt per New York resident. The Tax Foundation, Andrew Cuomo touting his the record on tax relief. Tax Foundation puts New York at forty ninth out of fifty in terms of worst tax climate in the country. Corporate tax ranked thirteen. Individual income tax forty eight. And remember, New York City has a city income tax on top of the state income tax. Sales tax rank 43, property tax rank 46, unemployment insurance tax rank 38, 49th overall, second worst in the country. So this idea that, oh, it's a it's a fiscally conservative, well-managed state, not big spenders. Well, the debt load per capita in the top 10 in the nation and the hostility the hostile uh, climate when it comes to business per its and frankly individuals per its uh, tax rates across the board suggests otherwise, doesn't it? Oh, there also this story that I pulled just from this year, January of this year. What should be done about New York's six point one billion dollar budget gap? Hmm. Wall Street Journal opining just a couple of days ago. New York's ailing hospitals. One of the reasons they're ailing, one of the reasons there's a shortage of beds, that was purposeful. Andrew Cuomo, back in 2014, when he sought to rationalize costs associated with uh, the expansion of Medicaid under Obamacare and to justify this $8 billion federal grant for payment reforms reduced at, uh, or aimed at reducing ER visits, Cuomo at the time said, Will that will it mean some hospital beds are reduced? Yes, because that is the point of the exercise. You will have a decrease in beds. And yet there's no evidence to flatten the Medicaid cost curve in New York State, where fewer hospitals and medical professionals were accepting Medicaid patients because the reimbursement rates were so low. And I know this from my home state of Illinois. Not only are the reimbursement rates below cost of care, you also don't get paid for 18 months. So people walk away from the program medical professionals, hospitals, physicians. So, as I said, papering over generations, even during Cuomo's tenure of what he was doing with resource allocation uh, and the policymaking that impacted resource allocation and infrastructure available for something like this. And now he is suggesting that, um, you know, this is everybody. This is the nation's problem. Well, I'm sorry, but it's not the nation's problem. I mean, it is and it isn't. Yes, we want to put resources to their highest, best use. Yes, we want people who are uh, infected, uh, sick, hospitalized in New York State to get the necessary medical resources, particularly if they're not otherwise being taxed in other communities or around New York State, around other, you know, for New York City, for example, around other uh, states and, and communities as well. Of course, we want to rally to where the need is greatest. But the idea that financially it should be visited upon everybody else to write Andrew Cuomo the blank check he wants, in addition to the checks that have already been written and will continue to be written. No, I don't think so. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. 
Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show. I want to stick on Andrew Cuomo in New York State and then broaden it a little bit to uh, some of the other uh, developments in other states. But we only got to what Andrew Cuomo had to say on Wednesday, which I had to refute, about how New York State is managed financially, you know, giving the uh, impression that it was a low-tax, fiscally responsible state. The data suggests otherwise. Just a fact. The decisions that were made by Andrew Cuomo on things like Obamacare, Medicaid expansion, reducing the number of beds, just facts. Uh, that's not to say that the frontline healthcare professionals in New York aren't doing yeoman's work. There's an excellent piece in the Washington Post, actually, about um, one one uh, what it's like to be an uh, ER doctor in New York during the pandemic, uh, written by Craig Spencer, the director of global health and emergency medicine at New York's uh, Presbyterian Columbia University Medical Center. It's worth a look. Uh, it's worth a look. I'm not saying suggesting we shouldn't be empathetic. We shouldn't rally to where the need is the greatest, the same way we did to uh, New York versus uh, during 9-11, of course. Absolutely. But don't tell me things that aren't true. Uh, This is why people have such mistrust in government. You're exploiting uh, this emergency to paper over mistakes that you made prior to the emergency. You want us to paper over your policy choices in New York State and elsewhere. And there has to be some accountability here, uh, since Andrew Cuomo was all about accountability at his briefing today. We estimate the loss of revenue is somewhere between 10 to 15 billion dollars, which, you know, all these numbers are hard to give a context. That is a ton of money for the state of New York's budget. We were waiting to see what the federal government did before we determined what we had to do because water flows downstream, right? Uh, If the federal government had taken an action that helped state governments, city governments, et cetera, that would have put us in one situation. We now know what they've done. They passed their $2 trillion stimulus bill. They say maybe they'll come back and there'll be another bill, but uh, maybe, maybe, maybe. But we know what they did do with the stimulus bill. The stimulus bill helped unemployment insurance, and that is a good thing. It helped small businesses, and that is a good thing. Uh, It did not help local governments or state governments, and it did not address the governmental loss. And the federal officials, uh, the governmental leaders, to stop making excuses and just do your job. Do your job. We're one nation. You know the places in this nation that have the most intense problems. Address the places that need the help. Yeah, uh, those uh, sentimental cliches are all well and good, but um, they require specifics and accountability. Do your job, Andrew Cuomo. Uh, You just mentioned what the federal government did. You don't think they did their job because you want a bigger check. Well, you wanting a bigger check and them not giving to you is not doing their is not not doing their job. It's different. And oh, by the way, you know, in terms of accountability, Andrew Cuomo saying that New York has uh, exponentially more cases than any other state in the country. And as I mentioned, seven X, the cases, the caseload in New Jersey or the I shouldn't say caseload because so many of these individuals who were infected have since tested negative and are you know, in remission, so to speak, they're past the virus. By one uh, count, uh, almost uh, as, as many as half of those 30,000 plus cases in New York State. This is an underreported data point within the data, isn't it? But uh, to the, the issue of New York's viral outbreak versus those of every other state in the nation, 
uh, he explained it because we welcome people from across the globe. We have people coming here. We have people who came here from China. We have came here from Italy who came here from all across the globe. Our closeness is what makes us special, he said. The closest is that, new, is that New York humanity that I think exists nowhere else. Well, I appreciate you being a homer, but um, this country, every state welcomes people from all over the world. You think other big metropolitan areas like Chicago, where I live, or by the way, these are sanctuary states and sanctuary cities we're talking about. <laughs> welcoming to a fault, welcoming to willful blindness, one would argue, or could. Mm-hmm. Kevin Williamson said something, uh, wrote something interesting in National Review. If you want to know why people are so vulnerable to conspiracy theories and to misinformation, it's in part because they believe that they are being lied to by those with whom they have entrusted great power, that the truth is being kept from them from, by design. Yeah. And the truth is, go look at the AP story today, and I'll, I'll tweet it out at Dan Prof Show. County by county heat map in the country. The experience in rural America versus urban America. And again, this isn't to point fingers. This isn't to ascribe blame. This is to say what is true and what is not true. And Cuomo can't paper over the truth with those uh, refrigerator magnet uh, aphorisms he's offering any more than he can paper over the financial distress New York State was under prior to COVID-19, prior to the COVID-19 outbreak. And thus, he's not going to buffalo the rest of the nation into writing him a blank check for things that are unrelated to the response to the COVID-19 outbreak. Fair is fair. This is Dan Brock. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. I want to talk about this uh, case out of Lancaster, California. 17-year-old who was... uh, reported initially as the first child in the country to succumb to coronavirus. He had died of septic shock. He was only diagnosed with coronavirus after he died. Uh, now, the, 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 there's questions about whether or not he's going to be essentially registered as having died from COVID-19, whether that was the proximate cause or not. L.A. County officials on Wednesday saying they're no longer including the boy's death in the tally of COVID-19 deaths until they know more information. This is a community about 70 miles north of L.A. Interestingly, uh, there's some people that are upset that they were left in the dark about the cause of the boy's death or the possible cause, the fact that he tested positive for COVID-19. Because the mourners who attended his funeral had no idea that he was COVID-19 positive. Interestingly, he did not meet the criteria for the test initially which is why he was denied the test and thus only identified as positive post-mortem. Uh, the mayor of Lancaster is a gentleman named Rex Paris. He spoke to the boy's father uh, and, and uh, told uh, the press they had people at the funeral and nobody knew. The mayor goes on to report that um, the family didn't know about the COVID-19. They were shaking hands at the funeral, so it wasn't like they were keeping information away from those who attended the service. The father also trying to get tested, but to no avail. He had just been told to self-quarantine by local health officials. And, uh, you know, this is uh, the testing piece of this. It was addressed uh, earlier in the program when we talked to uh, Dr. Uh, Slutkin, Dr. Slutkin from uh, WHO, formerly a WHO, who's an epidemiologist, and sort of the rank priority of testing. And it's a resource issue. 
So in an ideal world, yes, you test those who are symptomatic, which is the focus of the administration as the directives they've given at their briefings. Then you'd go do a contact tracing to test those people that those who are symptomatic or test positive, not just symptomatic, those who test positive have been in contact with. Then you go to frontline healthcare workers. Then you go to a general population to try and get an order of magnitude on the spread. That's ideal, but because the testing came on late and you're not, you weren't getting the sort of volume that you needed with just those presenting symptoms, you had to focus on those showing up, suggesting that they may be infected. Again, Mike Pence saying just the other day, 90% of those who showed up to the hospitals believing they were infected have tested negative. So it's still a small percentage, but you don't have the ideal circumstance. So in terms of the testing, yes, uh, idea in an ideal world with the ideal distribution of the testing kits and these other lab-developed tests coming online that have just come online in recent week and even days, you would have been able to test this young man. You would have been able to test his dad. So that's a resource issue. But the other issue is the death issue. And I don't mean to be macabre about this, but or idiosyncratic and well, how should he be classified proximate cause COVID-19 or uh, some other something something else at, at play with his uh, medical condition. But there was a look back at uh, the deaths about a week ago. We reported on this show in Italy. And you found that 99 percent of those who had passed away had at least one underlying condition, a majority. And Dr. Deborah Burks noted this in one of the more recent briefings as well. A majority had two, three or more underlying conditions. So then making determinations on proximate cause, you know, I have cancer, but I got the flu and I pass away. Did I pass away because of the flu or did I pass away because of my underlying the underlying condition I have in terms of cancer? Those determinations matter not just for accuracy, but because so much emphasis is being placed on the lethality rate and trying to identify what that lethality rate is in real time. And that emphasis is informing the policy choices that are made as you try to achieve a balance between the two healths uh, that are intersected, that are intertwined, which is our public health and our economic health. And the whole issue of even trying to get a handle on it real time is a challenging one, isn't it? There was a study that was done four years after the H1N1 swine flu, the outbreak in 2009. Public health professionals, University of Hong Kong, Infectious Disease Laboratory in uh, Australia, other uh, public health professionals that uh, collaborated on this study to assess the case fatality risk of H1N1. We concluded, we conducted a systematic review to summarize published estimates of the case fatality risk of the pandemic influenza H1N1. And... uh, They included 77 estimates of the case fatality risk from 50 published studies, about a third of which were published within the first nine months of the pandemic. We identified a very substantial heterogeneity in published estimates ranging from less than one to more than uh, less than one to more than 10,000 deaths per 100,000 cases or infections. Estimates ranging from less than one to more than 10,000 deaths per 100,000 cases or infections during the first nine months of the H1N1 pandemic. And yet we're trying to zero in on is it uh, is it like influence? Is it one tenth of one percent is the fatality rate? Is it one percent? The reports about eight percent in in uh, Italy, at least at one moment. And we talked about that yesterday per the Wall Street Journal op ed from Stanford University medical professors, how that is uh, incredibly misleading the methodology that would generate that number. 
think about this four years after the fact they're reviewing all these studies and these estimates that were made during the pandemic right it was april 09 to april 10 you had 60 million americans infected uh almost more than a quarter million hospitalizations and 12,000 plus deaths and these are the studies uh, and estimates for the first nine months of the pandemic while this is happening in real time but though policymakers again are making sweeping decisions in part based on that lethality rate if it was just an infection and nobody was passing away if this was a week or even two or three weeks even in a hospital but it had a, it was obvious that it had a, a infinitesimal lethality rate would the response from political leaders be the same would our economy be largely shut down would we have uh, something approximating martial law in cities like chicago i don't think so this is again where healthy skepticism asking the right questions not conspiracy theories asking the right questions being productively thoughtfully curious about the basis for these estimates, decisions, the underlying premises, the accuracy, even after the fact, even, uh, you know, what was predicted by one model and, uh, you know, what had, what the updated real-world data suggests should be the new modeling, should be the new projections. All of that is helpful so that we don't overreact because, yes, there is such a thing as overreacting. Are you reeling in the The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and let's, uh, as we try to do, end the show either on a lighter note or an inspirational one. This will be a lighter one. I'm not sure how much inspiration you'll gather from hoarders and strippers. Yes, those are the two topics. All toilet paper sales are final. If you were someone who uh, was whipped into a frenzy by the poopocalypse predictions, well, you could be left holding the Sherman. Uh, Costco uh, is telling uh, people that uh, bought a year's worth of toilet paper, fighting over it in the aisles and so forth, all these ridiculous stories, that uh, they will not be able to return Toilet paper, paper towels, sanitizing wipe, water, rice, and Lysol they bought in anticipation of societal collapse. No no uh, reimbursements or store credits for your frenzy. Now, on the creative side, a little risque for Salem, but I'll uh, venture it anyway. Uh, Portland, Oregon. Keep Portland weird. It's staying weird. Uh, Portland, Oregon Strip Club. Mm-mm. The Lucky Devil Lounge uh, has uh, come up with a creative way to keep the girls active during the shutdown. Boober Eats. Boober Eats. For a $30 fee, delivery fee, customers can order food from the club and have it delivered by topless dancers in masks, gloves, and pasties. After leaving the food on the doorstep, the dancers then remove their sweaters and, quote-unquote, I'm... I'm Reporting this from Rolling Stone, recounting it from Rolling Stone. Uh, remove their sweaters and quote unquote bounce around at a six foot distance. Well, as long as they're at that six foot distance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, 
I don't know where to go from there other than to my safe space, but there are no safe spaces. How's that for a segue? Safe Spaces, the Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla film. And by the way, I'm advertising for Adam Carolla, Mr. Co-host of The Man Show. So what trouble can I get in talking about Boober Eats? Girls dancing on trampolines, girls bouncing on trampolines, as I recall. was the. But anyway, uh, Dennis Prager, never a part of that. Of course, he's our colleague here at Salem. He and Adam Carolla had the number one political documentary of 2019, which I saw at a well-appointed theater in Chicago back when they were open. Seems so long ago. Excellent, excellent documentary. Uh, a lot of fun, also informative. A lot of great intellects participating in it. You get uh, commentary from Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson, uh, Hollywood types like Tim Allen. And you get uh, individuals on the left, too, like Van Jones and Cornell West, Alan Dershowitz, talking about uh, free speech and a free society. No Safe Spaces is a film that illustrates how America is exceptional and uh, the values that make it exceptional that we should protect even as they come under attack. Hollywood doesn't want to see you, doesn't want you to see this movie, which is why you can't watch it on Netflix or Amazon Prime. But right now, for a limited time only, you can watch it at nosafespaces.com, the perfect time when you're looking for a mental health break, but something stimulating to go online and check this out, nosafespaces.com, the Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla film. Do check it out while you've got some downtime. And thank you again for joining us on The Dan Prof Show. Please do again tomorrow. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is The Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.